And our epistle lesson this morning is found in Romans chapter 5. We are reading verses 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we recognize that we are implicated in sin and that we are lost apart from the work of your Son on our behalf. We ask that by your Spirit that you would make these truths real to us this morning and that we would rejoice in giving thanks to you for a gift that has bounded beyond our sin. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Some nine years ago when Melissa and I first moved to the Washington, D.C. area, we recognized that we were in a new world. One of the first markers of that was while we were checking out of a grocery store line, we saw a magazine there. And the magazine was about Northern Virginia. In fact, it was titled that, Northern Virginia. And the cover page article on the front of the magazine was about how Northern Virginia needed to secede from Southern Virginia. And so we bought it. I mean, they had us. It was, it was better than glamour. You know, I mean, this was, here it was. Um, and, uh, and we started reading, and it was really helpful information. But basically, the article was a, a hack job in sociology, but just, just saying that, you know, the reality is, is that Northern Virginia is blue and Southern Virginia, the rest of the state from Fredericksburg down, is red, and we need to create a new state that is Arlington County-centric and Charlottesville will be grafted in. You know, so this is going to be the most gerrymandered state you've ever seen. But it was saying, you know, that the fundamental difference in our world is between the blue parts of the county of Virginia and the red counties of Virginia. And there was all kinds of humorous stuff because there was these descriptions of what the red counties liked and the blue counties liked. The blue counties like Starbucks, the red counties like gas station coffee. The blue counties like Target, the red counties liked Walmart. And it went on and on and on. 
And the thing was is that over the years, I came to a deeper appreciation of what was being said in that article. It was written from a liberal perspective, obviously, uh, driving the difference, the main difference in the world between the blue states and the red states. And I found this division being crafted out in various ways. David Brooks wrote a very famous article in the in the Atlantic called One Nation Slightly Divisible, defining the major difference in our society between the blue states and the red states. And you could find this division on and on and on, that this is the basic polarity that we deal with, conservative and liberal. And people on the liberal side of the equation relate to it in that way, and people on the conservative side of the equation relate to it that way. They differ on the details. But the thing is, in the Christian church, when we imbibe that sensibility, we are already accepting a secular point of view. Because you see, that's not the Apostle Paul's understanding of humanity and what the fundamental divide is. But Paul and Augustine say it very well that it's the city of God and the city of man, or it's being in Adam or in Christ. That this is the fundamental divide in humanity. That it's not about red and blue. It's not about preferences for Walmart or Target. That those are really silly and ephemeral. That the fundamental divide, the thing that animates humanity most, down at its core, that Paul is arguing in Romans 5, is that it is about being in Christ or in Adam. And the question for us is that what happens to us when we adopt this radically Christian understanding of the world? What begins to take shape in our lives when we go past the political ephemeralities of our lives, of our culture, and we, be, we begin to adopt this far more epic-shaping, more profound understanding of the human race? What happens to us? Two things that we see in Romans 5. The first is we are confronted with our inability to manage sin. Verse 12, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. It's an all-encompassing universal statement that Paul makes here. That one man sins and that all men now sin. And we see that sin enters into the world, that it's personified here. And then in verse 14, that there is a reign of sin, that sin has a power to it. And friends, sin here is not pictured as a breaking of the rules, the doing of a few naughty things. Sin here is an all-encompassing power that has grabbed our world and taken it by the horns, that it has control over it. And we see that oftentimes our kind of facile understanding of sin is it's just breaking a few rules, doing a few wrong things, and that is not the Bible's way of describing sin at all. And for many that Paul was writing to, there was a facile understanding of sin. You see, in the Jewish world, it was often animated by the idea that if we have the law, then we're safe. And this is what many of the Jewish Christians thought, that they had the law, therefore they were safe. That the law somehow eradicated sin and took it away, that it somehow eased it, that they were better than all the rest of the world. But what becomes clear here 
is that Paul is laboring to argue that no, that's not the case at all. That the rest of the world is locked up under sin. And so in verse 14, he says, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even if people did not have the law. Because death was there, you knew sin was there. And then later on, he is going to make it explicit and clear that the law doesn't keep you safe at all. Look what he says in verse 20. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So the law wasn't going to erase, it wasn't going to eradicate, it wasn't going to nullify sin at all. What was the law going to do? The law was going to magnify sin. It was going to complicate the problem. It was going to bring the problem of sin to to full understanding and full revelation. Paul will turn around and say in Romans 7 that the law is holy and just and good. It's no problem of the laws that it reveals sin. The problem is our own lives lived under the power of sin. Several years ago when I was renovating a home, we had a glass door on our front. And that glass door was becoming problematic and I had to have a worker come Uh, and work on the door. And so he took the glass door off and he was doing some work along the wood and uh, the door was laid on my front lawn. And uh, then several days later, I noticed that there was a brown patch of grass in my front lawn, perfectly rectangle and square. It was like an alien ship had beamed it down and just killed the grass. Perfectly square. And I had just labored over this yard. I just tilled the soil and planted the grass and watered it ferociously. And there I had a dead patch of grass. Perfect. And I was trying to think, what happened? How how did this happen? And then it struck me. (laughs) Oh, the glass door was laid on the yard. And it was there all day. And then the sun beamed down into the glass. And guess what happened? It burned it. (laughs) Seared it. Grass was dead. And friends, this is the function of the law in the history of redemption and in our own personal experience that the law exacerbates our problem, that it burns the ground underneath it, that it reveals the unrighteousness, that it reveals all that's wrong, that the law is not something that we're trying to manage and keep as if we can somehow please God and earn our way into heaven. But the law comes for an alternate purpose. The law comes to reveal, it comes to expose, it comes to bring all of our sinfulness out into the open. It comes to burn. And so friends, in God's gracious work, there is also a bruising that takes place. And when we understand that the fundamental divide in humanity is between being in Adam and in Christ, this is what we can appreciate that all share this universal concern that we are locked up under sin, exposed by the law, that we are incredibly equal. There are no haves and have-nots. There are no blues who are superior to other reds. There are no reds who are superior to other blues. That everyone is locked up into sin. That this is the fundamental problem of our world. So we're confronted by our inability to manage sin. The second thing that happens though, is that we are confronted by the reality of death. You see in Paul's language that he combines sin and death, that they are partners. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, 
so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then in verse 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And Paul is saying two things here. He's saying that there is a representative who goes before us who is the head of a covenant and he acted on our behalf and did just as we would do. And that in Adam's sin, we fell as well. And then that we have inherited his nature as well and therefore we sin. And we justly deserve the condemnation of death. For this one act of sin, there is the just condemnation of death. And no one escapes the reign of death because no one escapes the power of sin. And so what we have here is a theological understanding of a universal reality. And the question comes to each of us, whether in church or not, whether a red state or a blue state, how do we understand death? Because we can push it away, we can ignore it, we can put our head in the sand, we can act like it's not real, but it's one-to-one. Everyone has to give an understanding and account of death because it is something that we all meet. Perhaps the most moving thing that I've read in the past year in trying to grapple with and understand the reality of death is Wallace Stegner's book, Crossing to Safety. He's not a Christian, so you can't look for Christian answers in it. But Stegner, at the close of his life, he was a wonderful novelist, and he's trained some of the best novelists in American culture in the 20th century. But he's grappling with the questions of death and how to understand Christianity and how to understand mortality. And so there are four friends in the book who journey through life. And one of the characters, her name is Charity. She had the sunshine, optimistic approach to life. She ignored what was evil and wrong, looked past it, and always tried to just perfume it. And then at the close of the book, Charity is the first of this company of four friends to die. She has cancer in her stomach. She invites everyone in so she could say one last goodbye. And this is her interpretation. Listen carefully to it. Speaking of death, she says, it's as natural as being born. And even if we stop being the individuals we once were, there's an immortality of organic molecules that's absolutely certain. Don't you find that a wonderful comfort? I do. To think that we'll become part of the grass and trees and animals that will stay right here where we loved it while we were alive. It's interesting. But do you hear it? It's an account of death. It's a metaphysical account of death in which she is attempting with all her might to transcend the fact that in a few short hours she's not going to be there. And friends, that's the pressing burden on all of us whether Christian or not, that we have to give an account. How do we understand it? How does it not make us meaningless and hopeless? How does it not just simply destroy us? Because friends, death is the reality. And Paul gives us an understanding, a framework though, that he sets death in the context of sin. And that sin is the result of Adam's action and of our own actions. And that we are condemned under death. So what do we do 
Is it just depression and gloom? Is the good word of the gospel simply a bruising word that you're locked up under sin and because you're under the power of sin, you are under the power of death? That is many people's experience of church. That's why many people have left church. It's just all about those people being dour and trying to get there and be better and self-righteous and and think they're superior to everyone else. But it's so far from the truth. So what do we do? Paul's argument here as he puts us into the camp of Adam is now to explain the way that God has trespassed the boundaries of Adam's trespass to rescue a people for Himself. That what God is doing in the world in Jesus is not creating a company of moral prudes who are superior and better. But what God is doing, He's entering into this realm where sin is reigning and He's going to defeat it with a reign of life. And so Jesus comes. He talks about this under the language of free gift. Look with me in verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And so Paul sets up two things in parallel. There is a free gift and there is a trespass. The trespass is the one act of Adam in which he rebelled against God in the garden. And he tells God what he will do and what he will not. And he sends our world to utter upheaval and all creation's purposes are turned upside down. That is the trespass. And the free gift. The free gift is the one act of obedience of Jesus. Paul explains this very clearly in verse 18. He says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, this is what Jesus has done, leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And so he is talking about the activity of what Adam did and what Christ has done. And friends, the reason that Christians don't fall into despair because of the revelatory power of the law and because the reality of death is because we believe salvation is grounded and lies in the work of another for us. It is the free gift. Who is Jesus? Jesus who comes into the world freely gives Himself in one act of righteousness upon the cross. And so assurance and salvation rest upon what is done on our behalf. Because we have trespassed the boundaries of God's law. But God has now trespassed the boundaries of sin. He has gone beyond it. Verse 16, And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. It is an argument about how much more greater, deeper, profound is the work of Jesus than the work of Adam. And friends, we all live with the daily reality of the truth of Adam's work. 
We experience our sin and we experience the imminent threat of death. And Paul is saying how much more true for those who are in Christ is their justification and their right standing with God. That Jesus absorbs into Himself all the death that Adam deserves, all the death that we deserve, and that it's crushed and defeated, and that we are given the status of righteousness. And so Paul uses the word free gift in one other way. Look in verse 17. He has talked about the free gift being Jesus' one act of righteousness on the cross. And then in verse 17, he says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness. And so here Paul has shifted slightly in his language with free gift. Not talking about Jesus' one act of righteousness anymore, but now he's talking about the benefit that we receive. That when we place our faith in Jesus, that when we receive the abundance of grace, that we are granted the gift of righteousness. And that the free gift is in Christ. It's not a reward for what we've done. And he sets up a juxtaposition that it's condemnation in death or it's justification in righteousness. That this is the reality of what Jesus has done. He has secured it for us. And it's not about what we do for God, but it's what's been accomplished on our behalf. And the path towards Christian assurance is not finding it within ourselves. That's not the primary beginning place. But the path towards Christian assurance is looking at the objective event of Jesus' one act on our behalf. March 1944, the bodies of two young girls were found in a ditch in South Carolina. It was the height of Jim Crow. And so a young African-American boy had been seen in the area. He was 14 years old. His name was George Stenny. He was arrested. His parents were not home. He was taken to the jail where a confession was brought out of him. A few days later, he was taken to trial after two hours and ten minutes of deliberation by the jury. Seeing very scant evidence, he was sentenced to die. Seventy years ago, he was barely big enough for the electrocution chair, but he was killed by the state of South Carolina in June 24, 1944. Horrific story. People have been working for over 70 years to right some of the wrongs done to George Stinney and to his family. This past year in December, a judge in Atlanta, who had the proper authority to do so, vacated the sentencing of George Stinney. Reviewed the evidence, saw the transcript of the trial, and said that this man was not guilty of what he was convicted of. That there's no standing, there's no evidence, that the confession was obviously forced and he was pressured as a 14-year-old boy to say that he did something. It was widely known in the community that he didn't and that he was a scapegoat. And so his sentence was evacuated. Friends, God has done something very similar. But the fact is that we're not innocent like George Stenney. We're complicit. We're in it. We've sinned in Adam, and now we have sinned in our own right and in our own acts. We're complicit. There is no innocence. 
but God evacuates the sentence because of what Jesus has done on our behalf. One act of righteousness brings a superabounding grace into our world that cancels out sin. That God has trespassed the boundaries of sin. He's gone into the foreign and enemy territory in order to rescue us. How much greater is His work? This is Paul's appeal to us. And he's pointing to the fact that we receive justification in life. That believers will inherit the reign of God and life in the world to come, not condemnation and death. And so how does it become ours though? What does it leave for us to do? Verse 17 is so clear. If we believe in one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. And friends, this is perhaps the most difficult part of the Gospel. Past receiving its bruising power and being exposed as sinners that now we are told that to receive this is not to do anything. It's incredibly passive. That it is a free gift. And the reception of the gift is just simply to be open-handed. And this is Paul's way of talking about placing our faith and trust in Jesus. But our faith doesn't procure anything from God. It's simply the only response left to us. It's to believe. It's to give ourselves wholly to Christ. That in going onto the cross, in that one act of righteousness and rising from the dead, that our sentence can be evacuated. That God would nullify our sins because of the work of another on our behalf. Friends, it's fundamentally passive what God leaves to us. And that assaults every bit of our dignity. That we want to do better. We want to use the law somehow to earn God's favor. We want to do something else beyond just be told that we can do nothing but passively receive. But looked at from another direction, we see a love that is incredible. That superabounds past all understanding. That difficult as it is to believe that there is more grace in God than there is sin in us. But that's what's being proclaimed. That God's grace superabounds. That it conquers. That it cancels sin. That Jesus' one act of righteousness is sufficient. Can we trust that? Can we rest in that? And then will we rejoice in it? This is what it means to receive the gift. And this is what happens when we get past our world's way of dividing up reality. And we see, no, that there's two fundamental camps. We are all in Adam. And then God has done something to bring us into Christ. That we stand with Him and draft off of His good reputation and His good name. Put your trust there.